0: On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas, halls we roll on. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Another edition of The Other Side right here. Glad to be with you. Giddy, smiling ear to ear j west texas leasing as we roll along here on the other side the most listened to platform and all these parts i guess one could say at least that's what the uh analytics tell us glad that you're in with us and if you're listening for the first time thank you thank you so much and thank you for whoever referred you to the program we are broadcasting from the racer car wash studios racer car wash voted lubbock's best wash Five years running. Stop into one of five convenient locations across Hub City for the best wash around. Guaranteed. RacerWash.com I got an email last week about, can't you change up the advertisements a little bit? No, I can't. Because you memorize them. And I have people who walk up to me and they tell me the Racer Car Wash, the Title One, the uh, Mullen Horton Brown... Uh, reads they remember them they're in their heads and uh maybe i could get some of you guys to come on one day and to read it for me and would we'll just use your read hey uh coming up this program we are going to spend the majority of this program on southern politics with dr seth mckee at texas tech university the power of a microphone let me tell you the difference. Is somebody who writes and somebody who does radio when you have a keyboard well let's start yeah whenever you have a keyboard you can talk about what you think people ought to know about uh, and you type it up and you let them read it and process it and and mull on it whenever you've got a microphone like i do you can either use it for like a hard line agenda and if i do have an agenda it's place i've always said that i'm a a prairie populist that i'm out for the caprock and the panhandle and sieving out what kind of politics and what kind of platform is best for our place that's why i can't be an adherent to either party because it's just crazy town both sides um i am i'm a i'm a prairie populist, but whenever it comes to the radio here's my job to you this is my obligation to you in order for you to be with me is to be original smart and funny and for me the default is things that i would be interested in listening to which leads us into the bulk of the program today which is dr mckee talking about southern politics and To talk through the history of Southern politics so that we get an orientation of where the South is today. Now, whether or not, and this is perfectly fair game and something will come up in the discussion with Dr. McKee. Are we, on the Cap Rock and the Panhandle, considered to be Southern? I think that there is a Southwestern argument to be made there, but certainly the state of Texas... As you get into the eastern portion of the state could be considered southern i don't want to get into a cartography discussion uh, a texology discussion on where the south breaks down and the southwest begins but i do think it's important that texas as a state where is it involved in the southern discussion and how that's played out and what it means from an historical basis whether you call it the war of northern aggression or the civil war whatever you might call it and how that's played out over time and the south definitely drives politics and it definitely elected the last president we can say that for sure that the south played a role in that which is where i'm going to go now right quick in a monologue so A president does what he says he's going to do and this president being I could say Barack Obama in passing Obamacare it it was about this time I mean it was like on uh, I think New Year's Eve one year uh, a president doing what they say they're going to do and everyone loses their minds over it I remember March 2016 speaking of uh what speaking of the last presidential election 2016 um it was the sec essentially the sec conference states with texas that that voted for i believe is on march 2 2016 and that's when the presidential primary the republican primaries came through and that's what put trump over the top was he won the south hands down now why did he win the south and getting back to he did what he said he's going to do and everybody loses their minds there was in forgive the phrase but rotting reaganism before globalism the free capitalization of markets and and you've seen what's devolved into globalism there but people still beating the drums of globalism within the republican party and that being Cruz Rubio Scott at that time all of them beating those drums and what were they preaching throughout the south we're going to do tax breaks and what the south read that is is tax breaks for corporate Uh, We're going to focus on border. We're going to focus on entitlements. And in the South, what did Trump come through and talk about? A new thing. One was the same, the border and border security. If we're going to have a country, there has to be a border. And the second thing was trade. And that was something that no one else was talking about. And in the South, where the mills have closed down, where trade has shut down, They know about, we know, I should say, about getting the wrong end of a bargain. And whenever we go through that election, the one delineating factor was Trump and Trump discussing trade. Now, that he's President Trump, he announces that he's going to help farmers and help farmers to the extent in which this quote-unquote trade war is affecting them. And this is The Hill. Thehill.com had the story yesterday. President Trump announced his administration was planning to disperse a second part of aid that would be a $12 billion package meant to assist American farmers stung by retaliatory retaliatory trade measures enacted by China and other governments. Quote, today I'm making good on my promise to defend our farmers and ranchers because who elected him? And this is a memo to statewide Republicans in Texas. Who elected him in middle America and flyover states? That's where he knows that his bread is buttered that's who went for him that's why i voted for him and this drives democratic listeners his program crazy i voted for him in the republican primary i voted for him in the general and there are lots of rock-ribbed quote unquote Republicans, maybe from Nebraska or other places that want to take credit for Trump or stand up for Trump. Now, they weren't standing up for him in March 2016. I can tell you that right now, because I was a liberal for going in and not going in for Cruz or whoever else in that primary. But I heard the trade talk and I said, that's right. That's right. Because I know that we live in a commodity driven place. And this was the only guy talking about what makes sense economically To us, making the most sense, I should say. Trump said in a tweet, I have authorized Secretary Sonny Perdue to implement the second round of market facilitation payments. Our economy is stronger than ever. We stand with our farmers. And uh, the hill goes on. After this latest round of payments, farmers will have received about $9.6 billion in aid. According to the Department of Agriculture figures, the largest payments will be for soybeans. I think soybeans and pork, you can throw pork in there. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue sent in a statement on Monday that farmers, quote, are continuing to experience losses due to unjustified trade retalii- retaliation the assistance will help short-term cash flow issues as we move into the new year he added the trump administration announced in july it was dispersing 12 billion dollars in aid to farmers amid escalating trade disputes with china mexico canada and the european union the administration said it would dole out the first six billion dollars in august Reuters reported earlier this month that the second portion of aid had been delayed by the administration. The $6 billion was dispersed in August, included about $4.7 billion to producers of corn, cotton, dairy, pork, sorghum, soybeans, and wheat. Purdue said in the statement at the time, Quote, all this could go away tomorrow if China and other nations simply correct their behavior. But in the meantime, the programs we are announcing today by time for the president to strike long-lasting trade deals to benefit our entire economy. Now, I've heard the critiques from both sides. So you're going to go to a trade war with China from whom you're you're borrowing money stand up for farmers and look there's some sense to be made there but a president of the united states can you believe it has stood by his word and is doing what he said he'd do and everybody looser their... and this is my biggest thing with you guys listen democrats just hear me out these are the very battles that you should have been fighting for the last 20 years but you wouldn't fight them you would not fight them, from Clinton to Obama, and you lost voters in the meantime. Now you've got a president. This is democratic policy. This is democratic. What Trump is doing right now is democratic policy, and I know that just, is, just ingratiates some of you to hear, but this is old conservative democratic policy, and he's doing it, and you're still losing your minds. Why? that's my question but i got a lot more questions coming up dr mckee has just entered the studios we're gonna get into some southern politics i've got i've seen the book we're gonna be talking about the book southern politics the dynamics of southern politics with seth mckee a good tuesday conversation for you coming up if that monologue upsets you then uh sorry uh, sorry but not sorry But you've got some good radio ahead for you Right here on the other side Stick right with us here From the studios where Buddy Holly became famous AM 580 loving. Red River, This is what I saw I saw miles Miles of Texas All the stars Up in the sky I saw miles He's in the house now we appreciate him coming in a good learned conversation with dr seth mckee texas tech university how you doing i'm doing fine doc
1: yeah i always i love doing radio so this is fun so
0: let's just do some disclosure in the beginning oh, okay. our kids are the same age yeah. um at least two of my boys and one of your boys are the same age and yeah. We're friends yep. off the air. True. And we may disagree, but we're still friends. Correct. Okay. So uh, we have an amicable relationship as, sure. as we begin in here. So you've got your book, The Dynamics of Southern Politics. And when was this put out? I didn't this, look at the copyright.
1: This past August. It uh, came out in print. And yeah. you teach what it Tech? I teach Southern politics. I'll be teaching that the, this upcoming spring. I teach political behavior courses, which is sort of how people vote, the opinions they hold, elections, all sort of rolled into one. Um, I teach core classes and the grad uh, sequence for American politics, sort of a big survey course uh, to get people familiar with yeah. the subject, things like that.
0: So you came in over the break. And you heard me riffing on this thing about Trump is a, this is democratic policy from twenty years ago. Yeah. Like Fighting trade. Sure. Like to stand up against globalism. Right. Like this is what you would have wanted. I know that Clinton ran and he he began as the conservative Democrat and then he kinda leaned into more of the moderate, left leaning Democrat as the tea leaves became more mm-hmm. clear. Right. Uh but you were saying to me over the break that, listen, this is what happens in American pol in Southern politics. Sure. Even if it is within your ideological interest, you defy it because it's somebody of a different party.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is national politics, too. And, yeah, I just popped in when you were riffing on this. And th- this is a thing I tell students all the time is that, you know, most Americans, are just pragmatists they don't hold you know many deep values they're certainly not terribly ideological they hear the term conservative and liberal and they're sort of like well i kind of know what that means you can give them cues but when you talk about an issue like trade and protectionism that's not something voters know much about so if the right party pushes the message then they'll just line up with it so if trump pushes protectionism which is a classic old democratic rust belt policy then Republicans start becoming protectionists. Yeah,
0: it is crazy to watch. Yeah,
1: and I tell my students this all the time is watch what happens when a president takes a position on something where people don't have dear values that they don't really think much about and reflect on. They'll turn on a dime just on party.
0: And I think you could make that very case for the upper Midwest that has been trending Democratic for some time now
1: and went for Trump. Sure, and,
0: and do you think it's because of this trade issue? And
1: I think the blue collar, you know, working class whites in that part of the country—they gave them the presidency, right? Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania—but that's a core value for them. So it doesn't – so they're not as concerned as the party in that case. They want Are the Are you guy. saying
0: they're more concerned about their place in their party?
1: I'm telling Uh-oh. you that when it comes to an issue that's like – I like I'm getting a massage right now. <laughs> that's a here. core value yeah. for them. Yeah. So if a Republican or a Democrat takes that position, they're going to be on board. Look at West Virginia, right, an old Democratic state that's now the most presidentially Republican because you got Republicans pushing coal. I mean, there you go.
0: Hmm all the interests all in the neighborhood I mean, and so maybe those politics matter those is are... still local with regards to if what you're saying is correct that yeah. you're gonna be pragmatic and for voters in the know yeah you're gonna vote for your interests and maybe politics still is local even though every time i turn on on fox news or cnn i remember the morning of september 11th dr yeah. mckee they started in with these like the dong of breaking news and you yeah. didn't hear those very often yeah but now all the time oh, it's the gosh. dong of breaking news like you'd be oh hillary clinton <laughs> slipped on the plane going <laughs> going into the plane right like yeah. up to tarmac well now everything is breaking news and there is an argument that everything in this country it's no longer local it's national but Whenever it comes down to presidentials, people still vote local. They vote their interests.
1: Yeah, so a couple things there. Yeah, they break news every every 24 seconds, and it's really annoying. And I, I talk about it with my wife. I'm just like, oh, boy, they're breaking some more news. But it's there's actually – it's sort of contradictory in the sense that American elections have become more nationalized. So the way you vote for president – is going to be tightly linked to how you vote for anything down the ballot if there's a party label next to it. There's no doubt. I mean, we're in a historic time when it comes to nationalized voting. But what we were talking about are those exceptions, right? So when you talk about things like cotton in West Texas, well, that's one of those things where people are going to go, all right, who's taking the right position? Okay, So if you can get to those issues that are really salient and they're core issues for voters, they're going to say, okay, I don't give a damn about party at that time. Excuse my language. I mean, that's that's something dear to them. But for so many of these issues, they just sort of fall in line, and people don't care that much about them. And so we're in a historic time when it comes to the way people vote the party line. I mean, it's just incredible.
0: They can cross
1: over. They do sometimes. Have there sometimes. Ever been more independents than there are right now? Yeah, there have been. But another thing about independents is you got to be wary when you hear the term independent, because we know as political scientists that most independents are closet partisans. And so when you ask them, what, what do you they mean are, by that? So when you ask them, hey, what's your party? They'll, you know, are you a Democrat, Republican, independent? Those people who say they're independent. When you follow up and you say, are you closer to one party or the other, and they tell you they are, those people behave like partisans. So if someone says, well, I'm an independent, but I'm closer to the Democratic Party, look at how they vote. They vote Democratic seven, eight times out of ten. But
0: obviously (laughs) there were a
1: lot of independents in the upper Midwest. Yeah, yeah who
0: may have identified with the Democrats over the last three or four elections who went in and voted
1: Republican. That's very I'm gonna, true. I'm pushing back on you here. But no, no, I agree. Maybe they
0: were true to their word that they are in the
1: I agree. I agree. And, and, again, I mean, you know, that dynamic is really interesting. Another thing about the Midwest is that the Midwest, you know, you can define it in many different ways, but the Midwest is the swingy part of the United States. That's the battleground, I mean, if you want to add up battleground states in presidential elections, there's more in the Midwest than anywhere else, uh, and some that you didn 't think would be pop up and they are in a given cycle, so the midwest is is truly the the you know the tilting the the pivotal part of the country
0: yeah, it's just intriguing. I mean, the trump thing, there are a lot of Democrats who would never and it's almost I would make this equivalent. A lot of Republicans went in, and they voted for Beto O'Rourke. They will never admit that in Texas. Yeah. But they voted for Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. And maybe not for O'Rourke, but maybe for Republicans to in Texas to get some... Mm-hmm. Eh, what, what word do I want to use? To understand that, guess what, you're on the wrong track. Maybe a referendum. Yeah, that's the way I would put and it. And you
1: look at at Republican voters for for Beto, and you know the kind of Republicans they're going to be. You know, if what you think kind? of, if you think about the profile, they're going to be suburbanites. They're going to be socially liberal, and if not socially liberal, they're going to be moderate. You're not going to find those Republicans in rural areas <laughs> voting for Beto. I mean, he he made almost zero inroads when you look at. Uh, rural voters in Texas, but when you think about those suburban areas in Texas, and you think about this turnoff towards Trump, uh, it's not surprising that some of those people would so would you lean put it up Beto. against Trump
0: versus Beto, and not Cruz versus Beto. I think it's or part. Cruz of, by proxy. We're getting back
1: to the nationalization question again, right? Okay. Which is to say that when people are looking at at a Senate race, they're they're thinking about Trump, not just Cruz. Um, and more so than a gubernatorial race, right? I mean, they're thinking this is a Senate, this is a federal election, and so there's a much tighter linkage with their presidential preference than thinking about the president in a race like that, for sure. Hmm. Okay,
0: so let's get off a of contemporary. Let's go into historical. Okay. And... I've looked at the book. I, you gave me my own copy. You even yeah. signed it towards me. I appreciate that. The, the
1: Amazon numbers, it, it needs to be better, but <laughs> oh well. Hey, don't be self-deprecating. It's a good <laughs> yeah. book. It's
0: a nice, yeah. handy book to have. Yeah. Uh, the Dynamics of Southern Politics here with Dr. Seth McKeat, Texas Tech University. You know, we could begin in at the beginning of Southern politics, the middle yeah. or the end. I'm going to take the middle. Okay. And I'm going to talk to you about, I just said in the monologue, the great part of having a microphone is to talk about what I think most people would be interested in, in an engaging conversation sure. like we're having. <clears throat> what has always struck me, and I've read a lot on the South and spent a lot of time, I've read Robert Caro's. hmm four part almost five Jeez. part series now.
1: Well, you're one of about two people, you and Robert Carroll. Right? Well. <laughs> don't be do
0: so, no, don't take jabs at Robert Carroll. Oh, no, that's good. No, Those good are thick stuff. books. Yeah, they they're really good. So I want to take it up in the middle. So let's go to the 1950s and 60s. Okay. And this is something that I hear a lot and something as a student of history that I take exception to. You hear Republicans say a lot that the Democratic Party is the party of Jim Crow. That the Democratic Party... Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and technically it is.
1: Right, historically. But
0: you see this great crossover. Like, I'm holding my hands up in an X to him right now. Yeah. Forearm over forearm. Yeah. Where lots of people who were Democratic went Republican. Lots of people who were Republican went Democratic. Mm-hmm. What happened in those... In that is all, I'm assuming this is my baseline theory, that all came about out of the South. What happened in those years that the Republican Party left, or the Democratic Party left Republicans? And and I know you say that in the 80s, but it happened a lot earlier than the 80s. Right, right. If we're being candid. What what was that crossover all about? I've always said it was LBJ, and LBJ selling out his roots, by which, you know, coming up, through the house like he did in the senate and then backing the civil rights movement the way that he did i thought that he always
1: initiated this great crossover both ways i think he nailed it yeah i mean you see so when you think about the south i mean we we as scholars tend to interpret as the 11x confederate states um Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Um, Did you study that in the alphabetical order? Yeah, that's the easiest way to remember Thank for you. me. Uh, so if you think about those states, I think you nailed it. I mean, Eisenhower comes along in the 50s, and he's so attractive. Uh, to either party. I mean, I, I always say this in class. I'm oh like, my gosh, you know, the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Northern Europe, D Day, right? I mean, sort of the savior of World War II. Everyone wanted him to run under their party, and he ends up running as a Republican. He makes inroads in the South. He wins the popular vote and the Electoral College vote in those 11 Southern states in 56 when he runs for reelection. Um, But Eisenhower doesn't have this conservative racial appeal. He's really about economics. And so you have a lot of these sort of upper middle class, you know, think, you know, silk stocking districts, if you will, in the South, where Eisenhower has this strong appeal. He's not winning deep South states, right? Deep South states are more racially conservative. Think Mississippi, Alabama. Um, It's not until LBJ in 64. LBJ... Right? Like you said, he's in the Senate. He wants to be president. He becomes a VP for John F. Kennedy. Kennedy's assassinated in 63. He becomes a president, and he pushes hard on civil rights. And he basically makes the decision to blow off the South. I don't care if I upset that Southern core white vote. If I can get this national coalition, and I can get black votes, and I can get Northern liberals, he makes that choice with the, C- the Civil Rights Act of 64. That's the breakpoint, as we all look at, because Goldwater, who runs against him as the Republican, in the Senate votes no on the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So they pivot. They completely reverse positions on civil rights. And that's when the five deep south states, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, Georgia, they all turn in favor of Goldwater. Some for the first time ever.
0: As Republicans. As
1: Republicans. And that's the real break point in Southern politics. And when you get that crossover you're talking about, where now future generations of whites become Republicans.
0: So we're going to go to break in just a moment. And, and I want to get back in. We we're going to talk about populism and why you're so down on populism. And you're, <laughs> this is a wrong place to come in and oh, be down boy. on populism. How would um, you know that? Yeah. Race by location in the South as it stands now and uh, some party ID so far as Protestants within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party over time. But whenever you hear commentators, figureheads, media heads say that, well, the Democratic Party was the party of Jim Crow. Yeah, uh, and trying to play that off now. What is that? What do you think, as as an academic who's looked at these numbers?
1: I think it's really silly at some level because our two national parties, again, they've reversed positions. So they've basically said, "Okay, you go here, I'll go there." <laughs> so in that sense, the modern Republican Party, so the party is the inheritor are- of the Jim Crow Democratic Party. That's what it is.
0: So maybe the parties are uh, pragmatic as well.
1: They're very pragmatic, but it's easy for you know current Republicans to point the finger at Democrats, and then they sort of embrace those positions. If you look at their opinions and, and look at survey data, like what? Well, if you think about racially conservative positions, um, it's remarkable how similar those positions are. In fact, I was just looking at this data; it's fascinating. Think about the Civil War, right? If you ask questions like the Civil War, what was the cause of it? Slavery, states' rights, both, right? Look at white Democrats and white Republicans in the South now. Who's more uh, states' rights as an explanation? White Republicans. Who defends the Confederate flag now? White Republicans. Who defends keeping Confederate memorials around? White Republicans. They've completely flipped. I mean, it's bizarre when you think that the Republican Party was the party that fought for the Union and and fought against a Democratic South. So
0: it's a little bit difficult for me here, but I'm uh, I'm intellectually honest enough to go with you in that argument. But why did Sherman have to burn down Atlanta? <laughs>
1: I don't know. I mean, I I don't think he should have done those things. Right? There's some beautiful architecture. Go that far. (laughs) I mean, my gosh, Columbia, South Carolina. You know, at least Charleston didn't get hit.
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, going to get in with another part of this engaging conversation with Dr. McKee. Stick right with us. You got questions? You can text us in 806 745 5800. That's 806 745 5800 as we roll along. Be back after a quickie break right here on your other side.
1: Ask for better weather. You are staying with a grin. We do the sound of hailstones, hitting not
0: it's loud enough, you gotta yell now The whole thing hits me like a song A big one that won't last long Carrying on with Dr. Seth McKee, Texas Tech University. The book is The Dynamics of Southern Politics. Uh, checked it out. Like it. You ought to check it out as well. Amazon. Just go ahead and buy it for your ipad and uh put it on in um so dr mckee i will apologize to you we are we're supposed to take the kiddos as a dad of young children you can appreciate this supposed to take the kids on a limo ride tonight Wow! uh, but having some schedule difficulty that's thrown me off a couple of times uh here (laughs) is the limo driver checks back in with me okay so Here's the deal. You come down pretty... You don't really treat populism the way I feel like you should have in your book. And for me, populism always comes at a point of needed political change. Mm-hmm. And it it flares out, but it tilts the scales towards one or the other. And I would argue that Trump is a great populist in that regard.
1: Right? Yeah.
0: Not yeah. just because I like Steve Bannon, uh-huh. who, who calls me. That's where I turn the coin... Er, coined the term excuse me uh uh, prairie social uh, wait wait it's the far right that calls me the prairie socialist steve bannon called me the prairie populist Uh Uh, uh-huh but i thought that trump did a magnificent job of a populist campaign but in the book especially in the late 1800s yeah you talk about a populist uprising in the South. But I think that that was necessary at the time because, and I'll go to Doris Kearns Goodwin here, mm-hmm. Let's pivot away from Robert Caro okay. to, to Goodwin and say that um, in her book, Bully Pulpit, okay. that focused on that age, um, the farmers farm the farms and the banks farm the farmers. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. there was an economic uprising in the South. Yeah. At that time, did the South go with T. R.? They go with Teddy Roosevelt in any?
1: Teddy? Large? Yeah. Mm, no. They
0: were hands down against Teddy. Yeah.
1: That the that was sort of the the ver- the very beginning of the Solid South was really locked down uh, when you get to the early 1900s. I mean, black dis- disfranchisement off the charts. Poor whites not voting. Uh, yeah. just coming
0: out of emancipation.
1: Yeah. I mean really the, the the turning point is 1896. That that was the big populist national election where that was the highlight uh nationally especially in the south of and populism. And that would have been That would have been William Jennings Bryan and William McKinley. Yeah. And so 1896 was the peak of populism. Uh the gubernatorial election in Texas that was the peak if you look at turnout. Uh, and populist support in Texas. It was 1896 as well, and all across the South. Um, I'm actually very sympathetic to populism in the South at that time. Thank you. Um, and why? The, the reason why is because it started off pure. It started off really with this, uh, you know, we sometimes use this term revolt from below, where, you know, you had the the, the have-nots and the have-littles, and a lot of white farmers and even African Americans coalesced at times and got together and said, you know, we need to take back some of this political system from the upper crust elite Democrats. And that's what they try to do. And so populism actually was populism with a capital P, if you will, not just a lower case you know the populist party if you will at times mm-hmm. people ran under the label like in North Carolina you even got fusion tickets where you had republicans and populists merging and republicans what were they well they tended to be black and so you you put populist white with republican black and you had some winning uh, elections there i'm very sympathetic about populism in the late uh, 1880s and in mid uh, 1890s because It really was this sort of fight from below to say, you know, we know we're getting fleeced. Um, What became ugly about populism and what persists to this day and manifested in Donald Trump was the racial angle of populism. In your opinion. In my opinion. And I find it really raw and nasty. And and it works well.
0: Like, with what regards?
1: To... Well, it seems to work well because, and this is no offense to people who live in certain places, but there's been a real sort of marriage of, if you will, values, voters, and in, in very conservative positions, and conservatism with racial issues. And so it blends... Like,
0: but what racial issues? And here well, I am pushing back on you. Yeah, well, you think so. Even civil, though we're good buddies, I'm yeah, going to push back Civil
1: on you. rights. You know, you think about equal rights, regardless of race. You think of issues like that. But now
0: you're going outside of race. You're talking... Are are we now on the LGBTQ issue? No, or? no,
1: no. I'm just saying, you know, if you just stick with a racial angle, I mean... L- let me put it to you this way. So Trump. Trump in 2016. Okay? Um... His race-baiting wasn't very much black and white. I mean, I could easily prove that that's not the case. His race-baiting was brown, and his race-baiting was rolled up in immigration. And immigration is a racialized issue. And so when people tell you, well, you know, it's not about race, it's about these people taking our jobs, coming into the country illegally, I can tell you for a fact that survey data shows that that issue is racialized. In other words, when people think about immigration, it's the reason Fox News shows you the same old stock footage of people <laughs> running over the border. It is a racialized okay. issue.
0: Okay, so I am now I'm in all pushback mode on that on that <laughs> yeah. on that issue. So okay. let me just explain. I grew up in Abernathy, Texas. I graduated with 57 people,
1: yeah.
0: uh, the majority of which were Hispanic. I knew a lot of people who would refer to themselves as wetbacks because they crossed the border. They were part of migrant families. Yeah,
1: and that was the original meaning of the term.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and and that's not to be derogatory. Right. But they crossed that border in search for better economic lives, better lives in general. Right. I said yesterday on the program, my great-grandmother used to say, money doesn't make it all better, but it sure helps. Right, and so, but... There's a lot of distance between those migrant workers whenever I was growing up in the 80s mm-hmm. and coming of age in the 90s yeah. and the drug war and the cartel that's broken out now. Right. So as a voter in 2016, I'm looking at Trump, and Trump is essentially, and Chris Matthews says the same thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: about just delineating where Trump was coming from. If we're going to have a country, we're going to have borders, uh-huh. and so I would push back on you and say not necessarily about race uh-huh. as much as it is integrity of borders and security therein.
1: I think there's room for that interpretation. And that's what
0: you're calling the gray that he was able. To yeah, couple, I mean, maybe he was able to couple that with. Yeah, I think some that, bias. No, I
1: think people like yourself see the angle, right? See the other angle, which is to say, you know, we do need to make sure we know who's coming into the country, right? I mean, those issues of security. I think that's absolutely a concern. And I'm not saying that, that a lot of people don't see that. But I also think that a lot of people see the way he speaks about it. I mean, well, how did he start off his campaign? What did he famously, or I guess I should say, infamously say about people coming from the country south of us i mean we don't need to repeat that stuff but i mean that's just pure raw right i mean that Wait, language. so
0: you're referring to him generalizing rapists and yeah and...
1: that kind of stuff that's how he kicked off his 2016 run for the presidency but don't you, you know?
0: he didn't just do that in a vacuum though I mean, there was an uprising. And it's just crazy to me that you see these MS 13 guys up on the northeastern coast. Like, yeah. how did they get there? Yeah. You know, it wasn't because Trump was not, or Trump was president, he let them there. They got there over time. Mm-hmm. And they made headlines themselves. And, yeah. you know, politics, it's not the job of a politician to go around and say, uh, Virtuous things. There I'm quoting L B J by the way. Yeah. But Trump certainly made a inversely virtuous argument to say we've got a border security problem. How are these people getting here? Failed policies of the past, whether or not you believe in a wall mm-hmm. is beside the point. It's that I've got a point that the borders insecure. Yeah,
1: not to mention what's the number, something like forty plus percent don't go over a wall or a fence or a barbed wire. <laughs> they fly into the country and they overstay their visas. Um, so I mean that's another hashtag
0: nine eleven. That's
1: another logistical issue. Um, but you know this just here's the other thing about about people coming into this country. As much as I think Trump has demagogued that issue. Most Americans want a path to citizenship. It doesn't matter how hard he demagogues that issue. Clearly, majorities of Americans want a path to citizenship. We all understand our history as Americans, and it doesn't matter that this president is going to rail and on that's that issue. so crazy,
0: because you, you know? bring that up, and I just did my Ancestry DNA. Yeah. And I wasn't going to bring it up on the show until <laughs> they wanted to be sponsors. Uh-huh. But I already knew this, because I've done a lot of background research My family wound up in Dubuque, Iowa, and then came down to Abilene from there. But they were kicked out of New York because they didn't want any more of those Irish there. there And they would speak about Irish the way that you and I, quite frankly, or at least me in West Texas, Uh grew up hearing about Mexicans, if I can just be explicit. And as I've grown older, I hear that same pejorative, Mexicans... In, with Irishmen in Northeast, and that's why they kicked them down into Appalachia. Yeah. And that's where you get the kind of music that you got now. Yeah. And you've got the same sort of culture and the dialect and the, the whole thing. Because they were kicked out. For all mm-hmm. this tolerance I hear about the Northeast, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. it was not the case with my ancestors. Sure.
1: And, and that's the beauty of America is that there's so many of us who are not going to forget that we, we're not Natives. There's hardly any Native Americans, you know, and th- that's just how this country was built, and but people know that. But don't get me that. started on the
0: Comanches. I oh. mean, those guys needed they <laughs> needed to die. Oh, boy.
1: I'm not but even going go there. Just the Comanches, though.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They were ruthless. We've had Sam Gwynn on this show. Yeah. You know, I've I've read too much Sam I mean but,
1: but think about it. I mean, think about this country and think about how immigration is one of these issues that it seems insoluble because so many Republicans, they want cheap labor. I mean, these, these businessmen, these parts of the southeast that are just growing like mushrooms with Latino workforces, they don't want all this tightening. I mean, they want to ease it. They want more labor. Uh, so there's just real... Issues that, that cross cut the parties when it comes to immigration. No. I mean, it's not clear cut at all.
0: And you might have pragmatists stand up on that.
1: All over the place.
0: All right. Uh, Going to get into our final break here. Dr. Seth McKee, carry him over. Make him go all the way to six with us here as we broadcast live from AM 580. Stick right with us here. About 90 seconds. Be right back with you.
1: The end was not I was saying. I 806 744
0: 7666. We have, if you're just joining us, Dr. Seth McKee at Texas Tech University. Uh, writes about, has written a book, uh, Dynamics of Southern Politics, and teaches courses on such there. Uh, at texas tech university we have uh, kind of gone across the ways here you and i you making your case me pushing back and then uh, you continuing to make your case there dr mckee um i want to talk about how race has changed race by political affiliation has changed mm-hmm. over the last 40 or 50 years and how i think you say you provide a data in your book that in the 1950s 75% of Protestants identified as Democratic and now it's down to about 20%. Mm. What, what accounts for that?
1: Yeah, I mean that's another one of those turning points if you think about Southern politics. Again, race will never be eclipsed as the main structuring force uh, of Southern politics, but uh, religion matters a lot and interestingly enough in the south is that you had this heavily protestant region i mean almost everybody you know historically was protestant yeah we know exceptions south texas louisiana etc uh... With but catholics with catholics but you know protestants just everywhere uh... and then you got this effect where of, of course you know we've become a more secularized country so you know that's part of the downward shift there but most of it is is the fact that the south remains highly religious and outstanding in that regard but it's really the the 70s it's really when you get to the the abortion issue you get to roe v wade uh and you have this this real dividing line before that really you just look at protestants and people aren't aren't They're not structuring their party ID, their identification, on religion in the South. It's not really until you get into the 70s where you get this Roe v. Wade decision on abortion, and you've got this champion in Ronald Reagan who says, you know what, I'm a pro-life guy, and this is something we shouldn't compromise on. So when you get a major presidential contender who takes up the, the case and says, you know, this was the wrong ruling, then you see all these conservative white protestants in the south they're hearing that message loud and clear so you get this sort of sub realignment if you will uh below the racial one that happened in the 60s uh over you know values issues
0: you you draw it out to be abortion it's the abortion issue yeah it accounts for that 60 percent.
1: You know, you get to abortion and then you get a lot of these issues that just pile right on top of it. Right. You think about prayer in school where the Supreme Court essentially took it out as publicly sanctioned going back a couple of decades, actually. But, you know, Reagan speaks that language, too. He says, you know, we should put prayer back in school. We, we should be pro-life. And so you think about these values issues And then that's when you get this religious right, you get Jerry Falwell, you get these religious figures, Pat Robertson, who organize, and they have these interest groups in addition to their church followings, Mm -hmm. and they line up heavily behind the Republican Party. And so that's the core. That's the core now of the modern Southern Republican Party is white religious evangelical conservatives.
0: And, but maybe it is, and that's what leads me into the next the next question. And I want to pivot here. Based on religion, somebody who's been on this program, R.R. R. Reno, mm-hmm. uh, writes first things, a, a notorious, infamous, famous, whatever adjective you want to use, catholic conservative thinker yeah whenever i use the term like i use in the monologue rotting flesh reaganism it was him that he coined that term Hmm. that in an age of globalism uh that that's what got trump elected was Mm -hmm. people saying look uh, globalism's gone too far it's come at the cost of our place um whenever i read thinkers like reno and i do read first things very very often um I have to think that, and i want to get your thoughts on this as we close out. I know that they say that there's the extinction. You know, Pete Laney is somebody who's come up in Texas parlance all of a sudden of late. The Uh Texas House is going to be run by Dennis Bonin like Pete Laney. And younger Republicans may roll their eyes, but they don't understand the managerial acumen of a Pete Laney. In the way that he ran the House as a conservative Democrat, mm-hmm. um, conservative Democrats, a dying species, endangered species, politically, but whenever you look at that crossover Trump voter, right, you have to think that going forward, and I've made the argument here on the show, but O'Rourke could have won Texas in my view had he not gone so far left, right. unprovoked. The right. way that he did. Had he not gone with the Pledge of Allegiance, like right. kneeling at the flag and... Ran and,
1: as a National Democrat.
0: Oh, yeah, he did.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I think we're about to find out why. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, but... I don't... I don't... As a populist, I do not dismiss that there's about to be a reemergence of the conservative Democrat. Uh, a pragmatist wow. who can think through the issues and then be the... Not just an independent, but a conservative Democrat...
1: It's a heavy lift. You, I mean, it's you a don't real, think so. I don't think so, just because I think the forces that have pushed the parties again, uh, you know, in different directions.
0: But aren't they being forced back in, though? I,
1: I, well, so here's the one thing I was going to say. You were talking about, you know, Catholic before, and this is a fascinating development when you think about religion in American politics. It's really the Republican Party is the godly party, the Democratic Party is the ungodly. And why do I say that? I lived 10 years in Oklahoma. Last time I lived in Oklahoma was in the early to late 90s. Now, this is one of the most Baptist, Protestant states you will find in the Union. And I can tell you that back then, Catholicism wasn't Christianity. But what's happened in American politics is that they even embrace Catholics now. Because Catholics who go to church, they like God. Is
0: that because of the residual nature of evangelicals in in Party I,
1: I think it's more that there's been such a massive gulf about this notion that when I think Republican, I think religious, I think Christian, I think people who walk into a church. When I think Democratic, I think secular. I think almost anti, you know, sort of against God, against Christianity. And so Catholics who are devout, they fall right into the Republican camp. And so even that fissure has been closed.
0: But even then, I would push. We got to close up. But I'm going to take my own uh, disagreeable nature with you there. <laughs> sure. But Catholics, I think, in I'm a I'm a student of Reinhold Niebuhr. Catholics, their great contribution throughout the very eras that we've been talking about, the '60s and forward, is that they were led by non-white as the papal authority for Mm -hmm. all those years if you wanted real integration you went to a catholic church you know and i do that on easter i take my kids to a catholic church okay so that they can you know because we're catholics yeah uh, but because it's the oldest living christian tradition number one but number two (laughs) yeah they they stood up against the kkk yeah They, they you know for all the arguments I've made for being, like, pro-Trump and putting myself at risk of being, like, Mr. Racist, Mr. Jim Crow, mm-hmm. it is the Catholic Church that stood up against those things over time. It was not, you wouldn't find a Catholic priest under many of those hoods.
1: Right, right. No, it's an interesting, I mean, I'll mean, i circle back to, we, we, we were talking Southern politics, but we were also talking about the Midwest and what became the Great Wedge that got these Democrats to become what we call Reagan Democrats is an issue like abortion. Mm-hmm. There's so many more Catholics in these Midwestern Rust Belt areas. You know, you know, you think of these cities, and you drive that wedge. You start talking about pro-life, and you get these union blue-collar, white working-class people who say, I'm a good Catholic, but I've had it with the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is the one that's sticking true to my values, so, I mean, that's a historic moment as well when we think about again those people who are devout moving to the Republican Party.
0: That's where we got to cut off, Dr. McKee. I'm sorry. No I gotta get home. Gotta get home. Great family, above average dinner. Gonna go look at some Christmas lights tonight. The kids expecting us. Uh you like this program, please share it. All you gotta do is click on wherever you download it. I don't care. It's all over the place. You can just google uh, other side of texas podcast and you can just send that link to all your friends and we appreciate you doing that because we like to talk about not what's safe but what's relevant and uh be original funny and entertaining while we do it and uh just like the guy I used to play here i'll quote him and say rave on buddies rave on uh, until next time right here on the other side thank you dr mckee for coming out my pleasure look, look forward to next time and we'll see you next time right here on the other side.
1: Ship break on the
0: mountain, rubber neck all the out. It's who we wanna be Bury up happy to fake it, and to step over it.